Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today, we have a Q&A. We're going to deep dive into these questions uh, rapid fire style uh, because two reasons. Number one because I have a good amount of questions and I feel like you guys enjoy it when I just crank through these and, and try to give as much content as possible rather than spending too much time per question, which I also think has a lot of value. Like I mentioned on the last one, I got a lot of feedback from the last podcast when I asked you to tell me, which I appreciate the people who messaged me saying they either like the rapid fire style or they like the long uh, specific answers, which I'm going to do a combination of both. I think I'm going to save up the questions that are very detailed and then every once in a while do a podcast where there's just like three or four questions and I just just go in depth. But today we have quite a few questions that I think I don't need to spend too much time on, but we'll see how, how far I go with that. Um, but before we get into the podcast, I do want to say um, I apologize in advance for what you are listening to right now. This horrible excuse of a radio voice. Um, I'm nasally. My throat is scratchy. My chest is congested. I just sound like shit, to be completely honest with you. Uh, but I also feel like shit, so there's uh, there's a reason for it. <laughs> but um, nonetheless, I am here. I couldn't keep myself off the mic for too long. Um, I took the last two days off of work because I was just, I mean, whatever hit me just destroyed me. I mean, cold sweats, head pressure, nasal, chest, like, I mean, just down and out. Um, slept in, took baths that I haven't taken in so long, Epsom salt baths to try to recover. So it's been a hell of a few days. But today, um, although feeling still pretty congested, I felt inclined enough and energetic enough to wake up early, hit my morning routine, and actually get back to work a little bit. So uh, I am here. This is my second podcast of the day, and this one is going to be a Q&A. So we're going to dive right into it and start with uh, the first question from Colleen, who sent in an email on the Ask Boom Boom form, which you can find at boomboomperformance.com slash podcast. And her question is, hi, Cody. I have been in a reverse diet for about three months with the goal of a recomp. I am 5'2 and started off around a Sorry, 98 pounds. I'm almost at 198. I am 5'2 and started off around 98 pounds. Since increasing my macros and adjusting my training, I am now sitting around 102 to 103 pounds. The goal is to get me up to about 110 so that I can cut at a healthy weight and get my calories high enough to do so with the goal of ultimately competing in a bikini show in the spring of 2020. I like that you're planning ahead quite a bit. 110 seems like a lot of weight. What are your thoughts on this? Thanks. So, I think your thought process is, is great. Um, I mean, from 98 pounds to 110 pounds, that's 12 pounds. So we have to ask ourselves this, like on stage, what would you want to weigh? If you want to weigh at about 98 pounds when you're on stage, you have to ask yourself, would you be leaner next time at 98 pounds? So it's really hard to say without seeing you physically, but in general, I actually do think you have the right thought process in mind. You have the goal of reverse dieting and building muscle. Um, therefore, adding a little bit of weight is okay. So I would say if you get to 110 pounds and you add 
four pounds of muscle in that process, I think you would be golden. So your goal should almost be to get back on stage at 98 pounds, to be honest with you. But this 98 pounds that you get on stage with in the spring of 2020 would just be a little bit more muscular. So you'd have less fat, more muscle, weighing the same. That is a complete recomp. So I think you have you have a good goal in mind. You have a good thought process. I mean, it is October right now, so that means you essentially have uh, one, two, three, four, five, six seven-ish months, depending on when you're competing. Um, so spring could be March, April, May. I honestly would encourage you to, to compete sometime in the summer or fall, to be completely honest with you. That way you spend a good eight to 10 months doing this because that would give you, you know, in a perfect world, three months of reversing, a month or two of maintaining, and then another four to six months cutting for a show. Um, I mean, you could even re- reverse... I mean, you've been reversing for three months. So that kind of actually gets you past that. But you're only 102, 103 pounds. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, like I think like my overall thoughts on this are simple. A, you're doing the right thing by assuming some weight gain during a reverse and planning for that so that you can gain healthy weight. Um, number two, I think it's great that you're thinking ahead of time. So you've already reverse dieted for three months. You know you still have time left in the reverse and you ultimately want to compete in over six months from now. I think that's really smart. You could even extend that out a little bit further so you actually have a six-month prep. Um, in perfect worlds, I like to prep people for five to six months before stage because that gives you enough time to have a successful fat loss cut but also maintain as much muscle mass as possible and not wreck your physiology, your me- metabolism or anything like that. Not have too severe of negative metabolic a- adaptations occur. Um, and number three, I think that I think you're going about it in a proper periodization standpoint. Like I, I really, really just respect the idea of what you're doing right now. You're increasing macros, you're adjusting training. So I'm assuming you're increasing volume as you do this. Um, you're sitting at three pounds heavier and you're ready to go more. The thing I would say about this in this third point is that although I love the periodization and I respect that you're thinking ahead of time, I wouldn't get tied to the number of 110. Um, I, I see people that get tied to a number and they rush to hit that number and they end up gaining fat in the process. Because here's the deal. Like let's say you reverse diet. You get your calories as high as you possibly could and you end up at 105 or 106. Cool. Are you more muscular? Do you have more muscle? Or did you progressively overload the gym? Is your metabolism healthier? Yes, 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 yes. Okay, perfect. You're in a great place. 110 pounds is just a number. Um, And if you pushed as hard as you could to get there, you might rush that process. And although you might gain the same amount of muscle that you would have gained if you stopped at 106, you would have added another four pounds of fat, which leads to more fat to lose, longer time in the deficit, and potentially more muscle loss during the cut because you have more time in that deficit. So in my opinion, the only thing I would say that is incorrect about what you're doing is I just wouldn't get tied to the number of 110 pounds. Um, I think the long-term plan is perfect. I think the fact that you've already put in three months of reverse dieting and you're willing to do more is perfect. I would spend a little bit of time at maintenance, um, transitioning from the two, if not a slight surplus, trying to attack muscle growth. Um, If you have a short period of time to build muscle before you start a cut for a stage, you're probably going to want to go into a small surplus. It doesn't need to be massive. Um, If you have a long period of time, and this is what I always recommend, you can actually stay at maintenance and build muscle. Um, There's actually some studies coming out. There's been some studies that have been done, but not enough studies for us to be like conclusive, inclusively or conclusively, I guess. Yeah, conclusively uh, convinced 
that's a t- uh, tongue twister, um, that you can build a lot of muscle at maintenance. However, there are some studies and they're doing more research, which I'm really excited about, to show that you actually don't need to be in a surplus. And if you do, you don't need to be in a huge surplus. The difference is, is you just have to be willing to commit more time, which means that a four-month bulk, quote-unquote, would be stretched out to eight months. However, you would put on less fat in the process. So there's, there's gifts and curses. A, you know, going with the bulk and cut route is a more immediate and it might be more motivating because you see more frequent changes and it allows you to kind of stay more engaged. You need to be a lot more patient for the, the later, the, the route of gaining at maintenance because it's very slow. But it's, it's very forgiving in the sense that you're not going to put on much at all, if any, uh, fat in the process. So, um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's my overall thoughts. I, I love the way you're periodizing, though. Next question is from Christina Lyren. I uh, believe this one is also from email on the Boom Boom Forum. I have been counting macros for a little over a year now, and I love it. It has brought me so much freedom and enjoyment to my fitness journey. I am very, very, very active. I spend quite a few days a week and strength train several days as well. I weigh about 108 to 110 pounds, and I am 5'4". My question would be in regards to daily caloric intake. I currently intake about 1,500 to 1,650 calories per day, and my macros are roughly 45% protein, 30% carb, 25% fat. Does this sound good for maintenance or should I increase? Which macro would be the best to increase? I am feeling great. Only issue I have is sleep. I can fall asleep, just not stay asleep other than that I'm feeling very good. So sleep is a very, very big biofeedback marker. So that that is definitely a potential worry for me. Um, so like, I mean, let's go with the average uh, intake you're doing is going to be uh, about 1,600 a day. Um, and I don't like working in percentages, to be honest with you, but you're consuming, um, so let's see, I'm calculating this right now because you didn't give me exact macros, 180 grams of protein and you're only 108 pounds. I definitely would lower protein and increase carbs right out the gate. Um, I would also say, you know, you're only consuming 44 grams of fat, which technically for your weight is fine. Um, yeah. I would maybe bump up the, the, the fat to 50 grams, uh, give yourself a little bit more flexibility. Um, but I don't think fats are the issue right now. I actually think your carbs are too low and your protein's too high. At the end of the day, you're probably relying on gluconeogenesis quite a bit, which is the process of taking protein and converting it into carbs or glucose in the body to use as fuel, which is a very inefficient process at creating energy for high-intensity training, which is basically all you're doing. You are doing a ton of strength training. You're doing a ton of spin. Spin can be low intensity, but very unlikely if you're doing a spin class because they push the intensity pretty hard and things like spin cycle or uh, soul cycle and stuff like that. So my recommendation to you, honestly, is I would literally flip the script of uh, protein and carbs. I would be at 45% carbs and 30% protein. Um, but I, again, I, I really hate working in percentages because I think they can be skewed since my fitness pal tends around calories. I think that um, it, it makes it more hard to adjust a diet as you go. And I think it ties you down into specific ranges when you should be somewhere in between. Meaning, rather than 40 or 45% protein, you could be at 36.5%. And that might be the best prescription for you based on an actual calculation. So if I were to like just guess your, your calories and stuff, honestly... Um, by your activity level, I mean, I'm probably giving you another at least 200 calories, probably 100 to 200 calories. So I'd probably bring you up to like 1750 to 1800 calories based on your activity. Um, I might cycle in high days. So we might 
keep your calories where they're at, but cycle in two to four high calorie days a, a week with more carbs. Um, I may just do more refeeds. It kind of depends on your goal. You know what I mean? Like you said, does this sound good for maintenance or should I increase? Like, is your goal to maintain? If your goal is to maintain, I would literally keep increasing your calories until you start gaining weight. And when you start gaining weight, I would pull your calories back down just barely to the point where you started gaining weight. Meaning if you add hundred calories, add hundred calories, add hundred calories, and you keep doing that, and then you finally gain weight, pull back hundred calories, right? So that last adjustment that tipped the needle and got you gaining weight, pull back to the previous adjustment. So now you're at the highest caloric intake possible while maintaining your weight and performing better. I would have you consider that if you did that and you flipped the protein and carbs, so you're getting, for your weight at 108, 110 pounds, I would honestly probably only be consuming uh, 1.2 grams per pound. So that's 132. So bump up to 135 grams of protein, and then keep your fats between that 45 to 50 and give the rest of carbs. Once you give the rest of carbs, you've changed your macro ratio from where you're currently at at this about 1,600 calorie intake, right? So now you're consuming 135 protein. Uh, let's just do this for you because I'm that kind of guy. 135 protein plus the fat. Um That gives you 165 grams of carbs to start with. So now you're at 135 protein, 45 fat, 165 grams of carbs. And then from there, I would literally add 10 to 20 grams of carbs every one to two weeks until you start gaining a little bit of weight. Classic reverse diet setting. Once you start gaining a little bit of weight, pull back 10 to 20 grams of carbs, whatever that last adjustment was, and just sit right there. You're going to be eating more carbs per day. You're going to have better fuel performance. I guarantee your physiology, your hormonal output is going to be much better, your balance, and I guarantee you're going to start sleeping better. Not only that, you're going to build more strength. You're going to build more muscle. You can start tracking those metrics and see those things change. So um, I hope that helps, Christina. All right, next is Adam underscore fig 93 from Instagram. Can you discuss a natural lifter's genetic potential for gaining muscle? This is a really good question, um, one that I actually don't get that often. Um, we have another question today about like settling points, I believe. Sorry, I moved the mic a little bit. Um, I had to pause the mic and cough my ass off in between questions. Um, but I don't get this question very often, surprisingly. So can you discuss a natural lifter's genetic potential for gaining muscle? Um, I believe that there is a genetic ceiling but I believe people don't hit it as often as they think they do. I think people are quick to blame their lack of results or their stalled progress on their genetic potential as a natural lifter, and I don't think that's truly the case. Um, the reason I don't think this is is because I've seen too many people come to me for coaching with this problem or telling me that they've plateaued, they've reached their limit, they, they don't have any gains left, and then we begin to implement a smarter, progressive, and more periodized approach to their training and nutrition, and all of a sudden they start making more gains. So really, they weren't at their genetic potential. They just didn't properly train. They didn't properly adjust their nutrition. Or they have been properly training. They've been training their ass off. They have been properly following macros. However, they haven't bought into a full gaining phase, maintaining phase, and fat loss phase. So I see a lot of people that are kind of just poking the line, right? They're too afraid to go into the gaining zone because they don't want to risk not being lean. And there's just some individuals that when you reach this natural lifting genetic potential, 
you have to tap into that zone where like, you know what, I'm okay building a little bit of, uh, or building muscle and sacrificing the fact that I'm going to put on a little bit of fat because I want to be bigger. I have a handful of clients that tried the lean gaining phase for too long. I even took them on and tried to do the lean gaining with them. I have those clients too, where we were lean gaining and lean gaining and we kind of hit a limit and we kept trying to do this small, uh, progressive approach and it just wasn't working any longer. And I had to literally be like, yo, you got to sacrifice some fluff, man. We're going to drag calories up. We're going to increase training volume, and we're just going to get after it. And they put on a little bit of fat, but they also gained 15 fucking pounds. And now they look jacked, and their strength and their PRs are going through the roof. Now we can pull back and do a mini cut, get back to it, mini cut, get back to it. And then eventually after doing this cycling in and out of mini cuts and gains, we can hit a maintenance phase, kind of reset that body settling point with their new muscle tissue, and then go through a full length fat loss phase for five to six months and really see what we built in that those gaining phases. So um, I do believe that there is a genetic potential. However, I think if you, I mean, watch people like uh, Jeff Alberts. I mean, you know, he's crushing it still. I don't know how old he is, but he's in like the master's class of bodybuilding and he continues to bring a better physique. Granted, I think some of these people get better and better at maintaining muscle. So for some people, as you age, you get better at getting leaner and better at maintaining muscle while losing fat. So you look more jacked as you do cuts. Um, but that's still something to say about muscle tissue growth, right? And it's still something to say about being an advanced lifter and pushing the potential. So, um, long story short, like I do believe that naturals have a genetic potential. Um, I think it doesn't come as soon as you would think. Uh, and I think when you do feel like you're reaching your genetic potential, I think it's time to invest in coaching, invest in some kind of programming and just really invest your time into a very, very smart, progressive and periodized approach to training and nutrition. So that means like really, really rotating different lifts, really, really tracking progressive overload, sticking with the program, like having a very systematic approach over the course of a year and commit a full year to gaining muscle and not worrying about seeing your six pack. Like do that and tell me if you build muscle after you quote unquote found your genetic potential. And then after you spend that year doing that, Go through a full cutting phase of six, seven, eight months and reveal that muscle you built. I promise you, you have not hit your genetic potential. If you are 55 years old and you've been doing what I just said multiple times, you may be close if not at your genetic potential. Don't get me wrong. There is a thing. I just think that a lot of people blame that well before they're there. You know, and there's people like me. Like I I can honestly say that there's been years where I didn't, I didn't really build much muscle, if at all, because I wasn't willing to sacrifice not being lean. Because for me, in where I feel best, where I feel athletic, where I feel confident, where I like my body, it's actually a little bit leaner of a set point. So I'm not willing to sacrifice that, which is actually why I'm excited about this new research coming out about building muscle at maintenance. Because to me, I would rather be like, well, shit, I'm not going to get huge, but I'm going to spend the next three years, quote unquote, maintaining, just gaining muscle, and I will be a lot bigger in three years. It'll just take me longer to get there, and it'll be a slow, boring process, but I'm okay with that. So, um, but yeah, I think in general, I think there is a genetic ceiling. Uh, I just think that people assume they hit it way sooner than they do. When you do feel like you've hit your genetic potential, I think that's when it's time to start investigating into more systematic and periodized approaches with your training and nutrition. And it's also time to double down on sleep, supplementation, nutrient timing, like the little finer details. Karen Harris, this one came from Facebook. What's your take on carb cycling? G generally speaking, is there any real validity to it for women who aren't working towards anything specific? Just fat loss and more muscle tone. Thanks. So 
Uh, really good question. I think there is some validity to it. This is a hard one because if we look at research, so this is where we have to understand how to use research in practical settings. Um, if we look at research, most research actually doesn't show it being very favorable because if you equate protein and calories on a weekly basis, nothing changes. Meaning if the protein is hit every day and at the end of the week, the caloric intake is met, meaning whether you had high days and low days or seven moderate days in a week, if your caloric intake is met at the standard set by the end of the week, if your weekly caloric average is the same, no matter what results will be the same, whether you carb cycled or not, calorie cycled or not. Um, and that's in most controlled s studies. I just think that there's a lot of real world scenarios that would dictate different results that have not been factored into uh, these studies. There's also something to say about the fact that I use this. Um, I know multiple people like Martin McDonald, uh, Andy Morgan, and I can't speak for these individuals, but I've heard them talk on it um, and educate on it and share their thoughts on it and how they use it with clients. And they also know the research, yet they still use it, right? So it's one of those things where it, it's, it's, it's bro science in a sense, but it's only bro science because there hasn't been a study to prove it validity yet. However, it works. <laughs> so there's there's reasons it works though. So the first reason would be adherence. If somebody comes to me and I know I have to create a daily weekly or daily deficit, really I just need to make sure they're in a deficit each week, so a weekly deficit. Um, and I believe that they will be more consistent with that deficit if I give them three or four high days per week and then a few low days per week versus seven days a week at a average intake. I am probably going to go with the carb cycling approach because over the course of 8 to 16 weeks long, they're going to be more consistent overall and therefore their weekly average deficit is going to be met more frequently and therefore they're going to see better results. So even if we just factor in application of adherence, it's going to win for some individuals. Some individuals would rather have a moderate intake every single day. I'm one of those people where I would rather sacrifice two or three days a week of like really low calories and have three or four days a week of like really high calories. Like that's better for me because then I can like train and eat a big meal. I feel more satiated on those days. And then on the low calorie days, it's a grind, but I kind of like the grind. I like sitting in the dirt. You know what I mean? I, I, I love that grit. And maybe that's just like <laughs> the crazy part of me that likes dieting. But, um, I think there's value in that, right? So n rule number one, whatever is going to allow the client to adhere most, do that. Uh, if it allows them to adhere to the protocol, stick with that. Um, the second thing would be there is some merit to say like, you know, well, if we are training really, really hard on certain days, there may be some validity to carb cycling if training time is at a, is at a good place. If you're training first thing in the morning in a fasted state or with just a protein shake because you train at like five in the morning, I would not recommend carb cycling because if you carb cycle and you eat carbs on your days of training, you kind of go into that session depleted most likely, especially towards the end of a diet. Because if you're carb cycling the day before you train, so let's say like, let's say like you train Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, that's a really good four day split. Uh, Tuesday, you're fine because Monday was a high carb day too. Wednesday's a low carb day, no big deal. But Thursday, you come into the gym, you got to lift heavy, you come in at 5am fasted, you are like depleted because Wednesday, the day before was a low carb day, you barely had any starches. Now you're setting yourself up for poor performance. However, if you train at 10 a.m., 12 p.m., or 3 p.m., you have enough time to get a solid carb-based meal in before your workout. Now we don't really have that issue. Um, so in that scenario, it actually becomes totally fine. And then, of course, there's also this factor of 
you just got done with a hard training session and you get to eat more food uh, because you just expended a lot of energy, you're probably going to have a hunger spike after those hard workouts. Um, so there is validity to that. There's also validity to say like those higher carb days give you more freedom to have more carbs pre, intra, and post-workout, which we know is going to directly help that specific session. So there is some performance benefits to it uh, from that standpoint. And then there's also the type of carb cycling that is more structured around diet breaks because technically – any way of cycling your calories up and down is a form of carb cycling in a sense um, or any way of structuring your carbs up and down. So let's say you have four or five low days in a row followed by two or three high days in a row. Well, now we're doing a deficit followed by a diet break technically and there's a hormonal response to that that is going to be beneficial for long-term fat loss adherence and metabolic adaptation. So now we're doing it in a different way than the typical classical uh, carb cycling where you just have high days and low days for your training and non-training, but we're doing it in a favorable way for metabolic adaptation. So there are some validities to it for sure, uh, but the overarching theme here is like you have to be in a weekly deficit to lose weight. So as long as that weekly deficit is accomplished, you're going to lose weight no matter which route you take, high carb, low carb, carb cycling, keto, paleo, it doesn't matter, right? So you got to find what works for you. So I do like carb cycling. Um, you asked about for women. Uh, who are just looking for phallus, more muscle tone. I don't think it matters if you're a male or female. I think it works for everybody the same. Um, I actually do really like it. I find clients adhere to it well. I find that it helps me improve performance for some clients. Um, and I find it, it helps adherence to a deficit because it's easier to have two or three really low days than it is to have seven just average moderate days. Um, now, this is in the context for fat loss, period. Um, I think in the context of maintenance, performance and muscle growth, I think it makes much more sense to have seven linear days across the week. Um, if you're trying to accomplish maintenance, you could do like a very, very small deficit followed by frequent three to four day diet breaks um, until you get your uh, – total weekly caloric intake up, meaning maybe you come out of a deficit and you have diet breaks every three weeks and then eventually every two weeks and then eventually every week and then eventually you're carb cycling and then eventually you're at maintenance across the board. Uh, for muscle growth and for performance, you literally need so – for maximizing performance, if you're training hard very frequently and you're purely focused on improving your performance and or building muscle, it makes much more sense to have constant flow of nutrients coming in every single day because on the days you're not training, you need to recover to be able to train the next day. And for the days you are training, you're breaking down a ton of tissue and you need to train. And for muscle growth, you need an anabolic signal coming in at all times, which means we actually do want insulin, uh, growth hormone, and muscle protein synthesis being raised. So eating four to five meals a day and having higher calories every day makes sense. Um, but again, in the context of fat loss, especially to improve adherence, I do think carb cycling has some validity. All right. So uh, James Ward, this one came for, from Facebook. Best advice for tips on trying to lift heavy without a spotter. Trying to push the last few reps while lifting solo in the gym gets difficult with certain lifts like squats and bench. I feel like I have two to three more in the tank, but I have to back off versus get, get stuck in the hole. So my advice to you is to do cluster sets instead um, and like rest pause because I think that like what the science has shown us with like all the talk about effective reps and volume and intensity and, and uh, RPE and the research done on like RPE and RIR, uh, reps and reserve and stuff like that is that the growth difference between an RPE of 10 and an RPE of 8 is so similar that we know that like if you leave two reps in the tank, you're actually probably going to see just as much growth as you would by going to failure. 
the difference is, is going to failure has such a systemic and neurological fatiguing uh, effect that you're less likely to get back in the gym and lift at that RPE of 8, 9, or 10 again. So it makes more sense to actually leave. Like you said, I feel like I have two to three more in the tank. If it's truly two to three in the tank, I think you'll be totally fine. Now, what I see a lot of people do is they say they have two to three in the tank, but they actually have like five or six in the tank. So just make sure you're being honest with it. And they've done studies on this too. It's like when you're alone, you have uh, more fear of lifting, I think, and you will underestimate how much you can actually lift. So there's actually a study where people put, and I think I've talked about this before. Um, it was a good research review in mass, uh, one, one article or one month that they basically put their quote unquote 10 rep max on the bar and they had to lift um, as many reps as possible. And when they had a spotter, the average was like 16. Uh, the, the lowest rep count was 12, which means the, the person who got the least reps with their 10 rep max got over 10 reps. Um, the highest was 26. So it goes to show that we underestimate things uh, quite a bit. So you might be able to squeeze out a couple more by yourself. Uh, the other thing would be don't worry about it because if you have two to three more in the tank, you're actually in the good RPE zone that's still going to lead to great growth. Um, it's just mentally hard to leave a few in the tank and expect the best results. But the reality is, is you probably will get the best, same amount of results as going to failure. Um, what I would do though, if you do want to squeeze out a couple more reps, do rest pause or clusters. So instead of me going to like eight reps to failure, I will go three clusters of three, which is going to be nine reps. So my volume is actually greater and I'm able to complete it with better form and lower RPE. So I'll do three reps, wait 10 to 15 seconds, three reps, wait 10 to 15 seconds, three reps. And then I take a full two minute rest between sets. And now I get the amount of volume without the scare and uh, I get all the strength benefits that came with it regardless. All right, next one is from Haley F 16 from Instagram. When you go to maintenance, from a diet, from a deficit, do you ease into it like a reverse diet or do you go straight to maintenance without delay? So this is another big fat, it depends answer, which you guys are probably pretty used to by now, but um, it, it depends on a few things. So when you go to maintenance from a deficit, if the person is in a physiological risky place, I should say, or like a down-regulated physiological place, meaning I feel like there's some metabolic or hormonal adaptations, meaning their biofeedback is bad. Um, their deficit was really aggressive. They spent a long time in a deficit. They were they got to a really, really low body fat percentage, like a bikini competitor or something like that. Then I am going immediately to maintenance. There's no reason to delay because if I delay it, then I risk the potential of not fixing those physiological issues. Um, they've seen this a lot with people who do, like when reverse dieting first got popular, there was a lot of clients that would get on stage, shredded bodybuilders, right? And they would reverse diet so damn well and so slow that they would stay just as lean as they were on stage. Perfect world, right? They're shredded. However, despite them eating three times as many calories, they still did not see any additional benefits or uh, I don't want to say healing like they were broken, but any uh, increase in like they, there was no sleep improvements. There was no uh, stress improvements. They were still feeling lethargic. They were still craving. They were still stressed and moody and like they still had that feeling as if they were getting ready for stage, right? Those physiological, physiological adaptations and biofeedback declines never rose back up because they went so slow. So in those scenarios, 
I actually would bump right up. I would do with a, a recovery diet where I bump calories up immediately as fast as possible to get them feeling better um, internally, physiologically. And then from there, we might, might baby step them up a little bit uh, as time goes to try to stay as lean as possible after that physiological improvement has already occurred. Um, now, in this scenario, and this happens with a lot of my clients, I reverse diet a lot of my clients versus recovery diet because a lot of my clients aren't going through an eight-month show prep. We do prep bodybuilders at times or bikini athletes at times, but the majority of our clients are advanced gym goers, general population, or other coaches. So when we get lean, we're getting lifestyle lean. We want to see your abs. We want to see veins. We want to get you shredded. Yes, but we don't need to get you to a point where you are physiologically hurting or uh, just just feeling better in general, um, essentially. Um, so these individuals, we can reverse diet because we didn't get so lean that they are in a physiological compromised place, a metabolically adaptive place. Like there's some metabolic adaptation that happens regardless, but it's easier to get out of. It's safer to get out of, and it's more sustainable, like their body fat percentage. So in those scenarios, I I would actually take the approach of easing into maintenance, uh, like a reverse diet. We're going to slowly bring them up to maintenance. We're going to stay at maintenance for a little bit to try to reset that body fat set point. And then we're going to go from there. So I think that the less aggressive you are with your diet, um, the not as critically lean, so the further away from stage lean you get, um, and the uh, safer you approach the diet, meaning you have more diet breaks in place, it's more of a lifestyle-oriented program, you can absolutely do this the way where you slowly ease into maintenance so that you can maintain the body you've accomplished because you can be healthy at that lean physique. If you go too hard or you have a standard of leanness that you're trying to accomplish like stage lean, we know that that's beyond health. And at that point, you do need to aggressively increase and get back to maintenance as fast as possible to get to a better hormonal and physiological standpoint, essentially. Next one is from D. It's like D. Equolution, kind of like evolution, but it's like all one word. Like D. I think her name is D E E D. And then Equolution. D. Equolution. I don't know, your name confused me. I'm just going to be completely honest. It's a hard one to pronounce, but it's a tongue twister, and you got me interested. Um, question is, when implementing a 48-hour 40 hour refeed, should I continue to exercise as I would normally? So uh, a two-day refeed, back-to-back two days, um, it's probably the shortest-term diet break you can do. When implementing this, should I continue to exercise as I would normally? Absolutely. I don't think there's any reason to change anything. Um, a refeed is there just to increase calories really and just uh, provide like a hormonal insurance policy, um, glycogen replenishment. The only thing I would say is that you might want to place your hard hardest training days around that. So if you have like two back-to-back days of like full body or an upper lower or anything like that, I probably would set up those refeeds around then. Um, not because, you know, I think there is a little bit of merit to the bro, bro science idea of like those calories are going to be partitioned to more muscle tissue um, You're because your muscles are like sponges and they're more insulin sensitive and like you might, you know what I mean? Like we used to place cheat days on our weak body parts. So like we would eat as many calories as we can and we would do arms and shoulders because that's what we wanted to grow as much as we could. But I think like it's more of a standpoint of pick your hardest training days 
because you just simply have more fuel. So in a perfect world, that second day of refeeding is when you have like your hard leg day, right? So maybe the first day is an upper body day where you're still getting a lot of volume. So it helps to have those calories around your training. But the second day you're feeling amped and pumped up because you just ate a full day of higher carbs. You're going to go into that session and perform better. Therefore, strength and performance and muscle tissue are going to increase just from the sense of you had a better session because you had more fuel. So I would try to plan your hardest training session days, but from a programming standpoint, I don't think you would change anything. Like there's no specialty that you need to involve in those days. Just try to aim your hardest training sessions around those days because you'll probably lift heavier and it's like, why not lift heavier if you can? Um, You'll have more fuel for those days. Um, and you'll probably naturally have more intensity and volume. I don't think you should change the volume you're doing, but I think in general, you're probably going to be able to increase weight on the working sets because you just have more energy and fuel. Therefore, you'll probably have more total volume, which is always a good thing. So, I mean, if you're going to change anything at all, maybe add a couple drop sets just because you have the fuel. Why not have a little fun with it and add a little bit of volume? All right, last question for today because I'm just going to be completely transparent with you guys. You know I keep it 100 with you. Um, I am dying on this side of the mic. Uh, As I talk, I had like six coaching calls today too. So as I talk, my voice is getting raspier and raspier. I have a cough drop in my mouth as we speak, and I've had to take a few cough breaks. So um, I won't wreck your eardrums any longer with my raspy voice. Um, And we'll just finish with this one last really good question uh, from love underscore Kaiza. Do you have any advice on transitioning from being with a coach to not having one and how to maintain a sort of self-accountability? So her question was a lot longer. She got great results with her coach, a lot of education, um, a lot of help, achieved what she wanted to achieve. And now she's kind of in a place where she's unmotivated to hit the gym because she's by herself and she assumes she would be okay. So there's a few things I would say with this. Um, Number one, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a coach during maintenance. Um, I, I always enjoy having my coach even when I don't have a specific goal because it keeps me on point and it keeps me more motivated, more structured, and just getting better results constantly. My maintenance phases are more productive when I have a coach, period. And I see that exact same result with the clients I work with as well. Um, the second thing I would say is you have to take some of the metrics into your own hands. Um, studies show that individuals who maintain the results they achieve with a, with a coach after a fat loss program, uh, they have a few things in common. One of those things is that, two of those things. So one of them is that they weigh themselves very frequently. And number two is that they track some form of metric very consistently. So what this basically means is even though you don't have a coach, it would help if you weighed yourself often and you tracked metrics like macros, progressive overload in the gym, um, your weight, so on and so forth. And that's going to lead to a form of self-accountability that would help more than you would you really even would, would realize because it doesn't seem like much, but it actually is. Next, I would say join some kind of group for a lower price point if you can't afford to have a coach year-round. Like join something like, I mean, I know I'm, it's a seamless plug, it's my product, but the Boom Boom Elite. It's the cheapest form of coaching you could possibly get. You get access to me every week. You get access to the private group. You get access to great programs. And it's it's really cheap. It's $59 a month. My nutrition clients get 50% off that. You get expert programming, live Q&A every week, private forum for questions. It's really, really high value for a really low price. But there's other people that do that too. So if you don't vibe with my stuff, obviously there's other people that do it um, as well. But being a part of a group and an association will help a ton to stay accountable. 
Um, and the last thing I will say is constant education. I mean, obviously, you're, you're sending me a question, so you do this a little bit. But I would purposely set up your routine and your schedule to be absorbing more content uh, from an educational standpoint. Start reading nutrition. Start reading training books. Start getting engulfed in the process because I find that people who really enjoy the education behind training and nutrition are the individuals who stay more consistent because they love the process. And when you love the process, you become less focused on the end result and more focused on that process. When you're focused on that process, it's just a better growth pattern. You are more involved, you're more consistent, you're more adherent, you have more belief, you're going to see better results. So the last thing I will say on this is like on top of recording the metrics, on top of joining some kind of group, it's just educating yourself constantly so you're engulfed in the process and you believe in the process. And when you do that, you'll understand long-term goals of periodization and then you can really think of things from a bigger lens, like a, a bird's eye view and say like, okay, I'm in this phase of my training and nutrition career. But eventually I'll be in this phase again. So that means I need to transition this way and do this and so on and so forth. And I think you'll be better off. So I think those three things uh, are, are going to put you on the right path. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering, and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomperformance.com sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of The Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.